Amen. Good. It is great to see you and be seen by so many of you. And I'm really excited about sharing with you a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you might want to get your Bible and, uh, and turn it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse, verse 5. I have a joke. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, tied to the jokes recently. I'm going to try them all out and see if I can make some of you laugh. Okay, so here's, here's one, of my, one of my jokes. There was a, we have this, um, my old church, we had this uh, Christmas event that we called Laughing All the Way. It was basically a comedy night. We'd invite people in from the community and just have fun laughing with them Christian comments or comics or things like that. And so I hosted it. And so I always felt like I had to come up with a really good joke. At the beginning. So this is one of the ones that I used. Ready? Here you go. So there's this little girl, and she is standing outside of her class, her Sunday school class. For those of you kind of new to church, we used to do this. It used to be like a Sunday school and then followed by church. And so lots of people would go to Sunday school when they were little kids and even up through adults and things like that. And then there would be like big church later. And so she was standing outside waiting outside her Sunday school class, and her parents were going to pick her up and go to big church for the next hour. The pastor walked by, and he noticed that she was holding underneath her arm a Jonah and the whale little book. So the pastor stopped, and he said, hi, little girl. Tell me, um, do you believe the story of Jonah and the whale, that he was swallowed and, uh, by a big fish and spit up on the shores of Nineveh one day, that, he actually, that actually happened? And she said, well... Well, yeah, we study it in our Sunday school class today. So, of course, I believe it. And he said, but can you prove that that happened? It's a crazy story. Can you show me any evidence, like real evidence, that that actually took place? She thought for a minute. and She said, well, no, but, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And he said, but. What if Jonah's not in heaven? And then she said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Nothing like a good hell joke. <laughs> you ever notice, though, that some of the stuff that we believe as Christians is pretty crazy? I had a college professor. He called himself an atheist Jew. So Jewish uh, heritage, but atheist in terms of his religious belief. And he, he sat in front of my, my class, my history class, when I was in college, and he just riddled off all of these things that the Bible actually said. And I sat there, and I cringed at first being, you know, at first you're like, oh, that's not, I mean, that's not what that means. And, that was, and after a while, you're like, yeah, actually, yep, mm-hmm, yep, uh-huh, that's, yeah. And people around me are snickering. Some of the stuff's crazy. Uh, a snake talked. A, a woman turned into a pillar of salt. A sea was parted with a staff. Donkeys talked. Virgins gave birth. Uh, seas were stilled by a guy on a, on a boat in the middle of the storm. Men would walk on water. People would rise from the dead. Come on. 
It's all a little goofy, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of you experienced any of that at all. And when you say that out loud to some of a friends or something, this is some of the stuff that I believe, they're like, that's funny, right? I mean, that's funny. They sound like myths. And we don't like that. We don't like being called myth believers. We, we would prefer them to say, no, that we, we feel like we have well-grounded arguments to believe the Bible and what it has to say about these things, but we do have to admit that they do sound a little bit a little bit crazy. And so we tend to respond in maybe one of three ways. One of the ways is we just keep our mouths shut about it altogether, right? I mean, we try to make sure that nobody really knows that we're Christian. And if we're a Christian, you kind of keep it down, down on the down low. Second, um, we, believe that we believe this stuff, but we want to make it a little bit more palatable to people around us. So we tweak it a little bit, you know? Well, you know, I, I believe in the Jesus stuff, but I don't, I don't know about arcs and snakes and all that. Or the third option is you say, no, I believe every word of it, and you, and you just look foolish. This passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 2, 5, is basically Paul's argument to all of us to, to pick the third. He's essentially saying, look, everyone is going to probably think that you're crazy for believing this, but the message that you have, the message of the cross is the power of God. So don't shrink back from it. Own it. Because God loves the weak things of the world. He likes taking them and he likes shaming everybody else by proving through his wisdom that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. So this whole passage is about foolishness. Um, Three parts of it. First, we, we believe a foolish message. Say that 10 times fast. Foolish message. We believe a foolish message. We are a foolish people. And, and third, we have a foolish ministry. We believe a foolish, foolish man, that is tough for me. We believe a foolish message. We are a foolish people and we have a foolish ministry. Here's the first of those. We believe a foolish message. Look, verse 18, 1 Corinthians Chapter one, for the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Like, I just want to stop there. What does he mean? What is, what is this? Word of the cross. This is the way he summarized the message that he's preaching. The word of the cross, um, that word cross is really important. Mostly because when you and I read it, it doesn't have the kind of uh, impact on us that it would have had in people in the first century. Uh, for you, and m most of us, we, we think of crosses as like decorations, right? You wear cross earrings, and you, if you want to get something lovely for your wife at Christmas, guys, you get her a cross necklace, and it's got little diamonds in it, right? They even make men's ones now that you know, are made of white gold with some other gold in it. And we, we, we put it on the side of our buildings. It's just a cool, it's a cool shape for a lot of people cross. It's a decoration. You know, in the first century, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. It was actually um, similar to our electric chair. That's the way that, you, way that you brutally killed somebody. It's similar to our syringe, uh, similar to our uh, noose. And I, I've noticed many of you don't have nooses on your necklaces. Most of you don't have syringes, although I've heard that's real popular now, but we, we 
don't understand actually the impact of this, this language. That what, what, what is the word of the cross to a first century person? Well, actually, I mean, the cross itself, the way it worked, the crucifixion was actually, like I said, it was one of the most brutal and heinous forms of torture probably ever devised. Uh, the story of Jesus tells it really well uh, in the sense that he, he followed pretty much what was a natural, what was a natural um, crucifixion. The way it started was they would scourge you. You know, you'd broken some sort of law. You had to be, you had to be a slave. You, the citizens never went through uh, the crucifixion. Roman citizens didn't, didn't get it. They were, it was beneath them. But if you were a slave or an enemy of some sort, they could put you through crucifixion. It would start with scourging, you know, whipping you on your back repeatedly. Sometimes they would just use a regular, well, other times they would do what they call the cat of nine tails, where they take bones and shards of other rocks and things so that when they whipped you, it'd wrap around your body and stick, so when they pulled, it would peel skin off. Seems to be that that's what Jesus is, has because they put back his robe on him and, and, and you know, it, it sticks probably. <laughs> they make you carry your own cross beam. So the cross has, has the vertical beam and the horizontal beam and they make you carry the cross beam through city streets, usually through public places so that people can jeer at you. The whole point was to remind you, of course, that you were a prisoner of the Romans and it's not enough for the Romans just just do away with you by chopping off your head. You had to experience a little bit of the humiliation that you needed to experience to know that the Romans are better than you. It's a way for everybody else to say, too. I mean, for the Romans to say, hey, listen, if anybody wants to go against our government, this is where you're going to end. If you want to fight us, this is where it's going to end. Not just death, but a humiliating death. Carry your own crossbeam to, to the location of your death, usually along a main road. They would... The, tie the cross beam to the vertical beam and uh, nail your hands on, or sometimes they'd, they'd use ropes. For Jesus' case, they, they nailed him between the bones that converge in your wrist. When you get up on the cross, the way you breathe is you pull yourself up so that you can fill your lungs with air, and then when you go back down, I mean, you can try this at home, by the way, you can try to breathe, try to breathe when, when your lungs are collapsed. You can't, eventually you have to pull up and go down. The whole idea was that you would die of asphyxiation. You just couldn't couldn't get any oxygen inside your lungs. They would um, normally put some kind of uh, designation of who you were around your neck while you were carrying the cross beam and usually take that designation and put it on the cross itself. So you, you, if you're guilty of whatever crime it is, you know, they put it up there. So with Jesus, uh, king of the Jews, that's that's. You can see what they were trying to do, right? Look what we just did. We killed the king of the Jews. That's how, how powerful we Romans are. And every Jew should take a, pay attention because this, this king that you claimed was yours, we just, we just slaughtered him. When you're on the cross, they often had a little seat behind it. I know that it would ruin our ne necklaces if they had that and that and one here. But like, often they put a seat there because they want it to last a little bit longer. They, want, they wanted you to be up there for a while, suffering. The whole goal was humiliation. You would defecate yourself. You're not, they didn't give you like a, a break, a latrine break. You defecate on yourself. You're once mighty warrior, once enemy of Rome, and now you're up there on a cross defecating yourself. People who walk by this main road, they, they spit at you, they hurl insults at you. One time, the Romans actually... Um, 
they won a major battle and there were about 6,000 prisoners of war and they, they crucified them one after another along the main road that went into Rome. Sending, of course, the message, we're, we're better, better than you. So here's the thing, the message of the cross, the belief that the Messiah, the deliverer, the king, was actually crucified by the Romans, is crazy. Deliverers win by beating their enemy. That, that's how it works. Every, you know this in the movies, the equalizer. He's alive at the end and the bad guys are not. So for you to say, hey, we believe and we're going to proclaim this message about our king, our God, who was killed by the Romans. That's just stupid. That's, that's just, it's just foolish. The first century Romans, the crucified, were the scum of the earth. So when Paul preached the message of the crucified God, people, of course, laughed at him. But he says, look, yeah, I get it. It's folly. To those who are perishing, to those who don't believe, to those who are not gods, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's this massive difference between the way that somebody looks upon the cross who's outside of the church and says, yeah, that's stupid. The message you believe is ridiculous and nonsensical, and they share with their friends, and they all laugh together at you because you're foolish for believing it. But you and I who believe it, to us, it's not foolish. It's the power of God. It's everything. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will, I will thwart. So in verse 20, he starts in by asking some uh, um, rhetorical questions. Okay, who's, who's the one who's wise? Where, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Uh, he's basically asking, where are your politicians and lawyers? Where, where are the debaters on the middle of Mars Hill debating from their Epicurean or Stoic philosophies? Where's your Plato? Where's your Aristotle? Gather together for me all of the smartest people in the entire world. Get all of them in front of me. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? All of those people, what God has done is he made foolish their belief. They call you a fool. Actually, they're the fool. For since in the wisdom of, that's a great line, by the way. For in, since in the wisdom of God, because it pleased God to choose what was wise and the best path forward, the world did not know God through wisdom. So he planned it in a way that the world would not know him through wisdom, that they wouldn't be able to find him through their own clever maneuverings with their mind. That's what they want. That's what the whole world wants. They, we're going to create a religion. We're going to actually find God through our religious tradition. We're going to find utopia. That's what we're after. And, and Paul's like, no, uh, in the wisdom of God, the world doesn't know God through wisdom. They can't get to him. In the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, this message of the cross, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, 
Jews were, they were like, listen, if you're the Messiah, why aren't you like Moses? Remember Moses, he did all the signs, he dropped his staff, part of the sea. Just prove it to us, Jesus. Just, Paul, just prove it to us. We want some signs. We want evidence that he is the deliverer who wins in the end. Remember Moses? He won. Pharaoh died. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. They want it to fit within their own kind of conception of reality. But we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he's the power of God and he's the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger, is stronger than men. Look, um, his point right here is that some will think the message of the cross is foolish, but our response isn't to change it, to appeal to them. You notice that Paul says that? Uh, they demand sides, Greek seem wisdom, but, but we preach Christ crucified. We, we actually don't give them what they want. We don't change the message in such a way that it might appeal to them by gutting the message of what it actually is, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So let me try to illustrate that a little bit. Um, so I had a, had a friend, he, uh, he was a professor at a very a major uh, university. He would go to, he was a comparative religions professor, and he would go, and he would, uh, he would be in these uh, comparative religion faculty meetings, both within his university, and then they'd go, and they'd have, you know, academic committee and academic group meetings and, you know, on the West Coast or the Midwest or whatever, and they all get together and talk about what they're learning in comparative religions. One of the things you need to know about comparative religion faculty at secular universities especially, they don't believe any of the religions they're comparing. Like they're, they're almost all secularists. So we're, we're comparing the religions, but we're not stupid enough to believe any of the religions. So when they get together, they all talk and enjoy each other's company and drink their wine and see how things are going. But this, my friend, he, um, he's like a zoo animal to them because he's, an, he's evangelical. He, he actually believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he's teaching religion, comparative religion, he comes at it from the point of view of somebody who believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. In these meetings, he tells me that, look, sometimes... There'll be somebody across the room who'll come, come over to him and say, hey, hey, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Grab him by the shoulder and say, I gotta introduce you to some people. And he drags them over. He sets them in the middle of this, of this group of all these guys holding wine or beer or whatever it is that they're drinking at that time. And his, the guy who dragged him over will say, hey, guys, this is my friend, Dr. So-and-so. He's a Christian. And everyone else will be like, What? What you actually believe, and they will pepper him with questions about, well, like, how could you possibly believe any, any of this nonsense? Can you imagine being in that situation? At, at some point, wouldn't you just get sick of it? Wouldn't you just be like, I, 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 would like to, I would like to fit in at some point or another. I would like people to accept me. I don't want to look foolish. But more importantly, I actually want to convince them to believe what I believe. It's like if I believe that God is going to judge the world and he's going to hold sinners accountable for their sin, and the only way out of that is a belief in 
Jesus Christ, God's only son, who gave a sacrifice on the cross for people, then I, I desperately want my friends within comparative religion to believe this message. But they won't because they think it's so stupid. Wouldn't you be tempted at this moment to be like, but they would believe if I just, you know, cut some of the edges off of it. I mean, that's like a missionary move, right? I get more people to buy into it. If I just, you know, lop off the edges, the little hard bits that they find difficult. So many people don't know that Thomas Jefferson, the great Thomas Jefferson, um, he actually is pretty well known for his, his Bible, which they've reproduced actually sometimes. What Thomas Jefferson basically did with the Bible is he went through it and he cut out, literally cut out all the spots that made any reference to Jesus' divinity. Jesus is just a guy who lived a really moral life. And the important thing is for you to live a moral life like Jesus so you can be a good American. But let's not uh, get bogged down with any of this God mumbo jumbo. And so he'd go in there and he'd actually cut out sections. And thus, Thomas Jefferson had a very holy Bible. <laughs> Um, we try to get out of making it foolish by catering it to the people around us so that they will believe it better. But when you do that, when you cut out the pieces like Jesus is God, you've basically reached in, grabbed the heart of it, and ripped it out. You have the shell of it. It might look the same, but underneath the hood, there's no power. It will get you nowhere Everyone from the outside will look at it and be saying, yeah, they're saying the same thing as you're saying. No, they're not. They're not. Because ripping out the guts of Christianity and trying to get away from the hard bits actually kills it. It makes it ineffective. L look, um, the reason that you won't get mad at me when I pull the legs off of a grasshopper, but you will get mad at me when I pull the legs off of a baby. This is all hypothetical. Can I just put that out there at the beginning here? <laughs> the reason is because you know that qualitatively the baby has higher value than the grasshopper. You know that, okay? That, that to wrong a qualitatively higher being is a greater sin. It, it receives greater punishment. If I pull the legs off the grasshopper, you might just be like, oh, what a weirdo. But if I pull the legs off a baby, you're like, jail, immediately. If I pull the legs off the queen, <laughs> I might die. You, you notice though, okay, so here's the thing. Um, what if I pull the legs off of God? Like, what, what, is, what does that get me? What kind of judgment is due somebody who wrongs a supremely, eternally excellent being? What kind of wrath do you deserve? See, if I, if, I, if I act in that way towards somebody who is limited in terms of their majesty or, or beauty or quality, 
I can understand me actually at some point or another saying, yeah, that's enough. That's enough punishment. That's enough, you know, you've paid it back. Retribution, that's enough. But what if it's God? What if he's qualitatively perfect, eternally so? Doesn't that mean that a sin against an eternally worthy God is an eternally heinous sin? Yes, it does, which means, of course, that those who sin against God are ultimately guilty of an eternal sin. They have to pay eternally for that sin. Now, you've got two options here. One, you can say, right, I'm going to pay that. Which, of course, ends you in eternal judgment forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Or you can find an eternally worthy other who's eternally as worthy as God himself, and you can get him to pay it for you. That's the only way out of the eternal abyss is if you can find a qualitatively eternal being who will give himself for you. And God in his wisdom said, yes, my son is that. He gives him to us. He sacrifices him on a cross as part of the plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had concocted before the beginning of the ages to display the character of God to the nations. Everyone calls that foolish, but when you and I look at it, we think that's magnificent. So wise. We never would have come up with that. It's the power of God. See, listen, if you rip out the little pieces, though, if you say, yeah, well, he's not eternally worthy, or yeah, the judgment is not eternal, or yeah, but there's other ways, what have you done? You might have made it more palatable to people outside the doors, but you've essentially taken your hand in, ripped out every part that matters, and turned it into an ineffectual car that goes nowhere. Nowhere. Jews demand signs Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Folly to them, but to us he is the power of God. You know, uh, there was a pastor a number of years ago who was interviewed by, remember Larry King? Hi, Larry. Larry King. Yeah, some of you who are old enough. He basically used to be the Anderson Cooper, but better. Anyway, he, he would interview uh, all sorts of different people, and he interviewed a famous pastor, and basically Larry King kind of outlined what I just said in more layman's, simple terms, and he said, now, pastor, uh, you don't seem to believe in sin and judgment and eternal condemnation, or you, you don't seem to believe in all those things, and the pastor said in response, well, that's not my message. Yes, but it is the message, brother. It is the message. I don't care what your message is. That is the message. It's the one that has the power of God to save. Yours doesn't have anything. You, but yes, but I'm gathering a crowd. I don't care. I could strip right now and gather a crowd. Well, maybe not, right? You find somebody to strip. Gathering a crowd, who cares? Who cares? What are you giving them? What are you giving them? What message are you proclaiming to them? The Apostle Paul said it really well. Second Corinthians chapter four, he's trying to deal with the question, why are all these Jewish people I'm proclaiming the gospel to not believing? Shouldn't I maybe just cater it to them a little bit more? He says, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Look, we refuse 
to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's failed, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We, we just give it to them because it's the power of God and he will save through it. So we believe a foolish message. Secondly, uh, we, we are a foolish people. This is where it gets fun. Verse 26. Okay, so he's going to say, right? You want proof? You want proof that our message and that Christianity is all about foolishness? Exhibit number one, you guys. Uh, for consider your calling, brothers. Look, not, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, okay? Uh, not many powerful, not many of, of noble birth. In the early church especially, they, they were getting a lot of people from the dregs of society. The, the gospel still has an appeal around the world to people who are poorer than richer. It, it, it just does. The, the gospel seems to speak to people who already know that they don't have it together. And so people who are from the lower echelon of society tend to come to Christ more quickly than someone who's like rich and powerful, right? It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, says our Lord Jesus. So lots and lots of people came from the dregs of society. In fact, there's one, uh, there was one guy named Celsus who wrote in the early, early days, I think this is the fourth century, he said their injunctions are like this. Uh, their injunctions meaning their, their, their proclamations as Christians. Uh, let no one uneducated, let no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us, by us Christians, to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, stupid, uneducated, child, let him come boldly by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God. They show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. Uh, by the way, you could take that at a college campus these days and probably find a professor who echoes those sentiments. You deplorables. You fools. For believing this. And Paul's like, yeah, that's probably pretty true. We weren't, we weren't wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many noble birth, but, but listen, God chose what is foolish in the world, why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, why? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Yes? Why, why is he doing this? So no human being will boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why, okay, why, why is God doing this? Why did he choose the weak things instead of choosing the strong things? Because you and I would have chosen the strong things. That's how we always do it, Right? When you line up people and you're going to choose them for your football team on the playground, who do you pick? Well, you pick the big, tall, strapping lad. I'll take, you guys remember doing this when you were young? You go on the playground and they, everyone lines up 
you know, like it's before a firing squad. There are a few of them who are really ready to play. You know, they brought their football pants and pads and a little helmet. And then there are the kids that are out there because they can't do anything. Oh, they're picking their nose and looking off in the distance. Oh, a butterfly. And so you, you pick. You pick first. Uh, I'll take Joe because he's big, strong, and handsome. All right. I'm going to pick Ryan because he can play quarterback and he's got a really good arm. I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick. You get down to the last two or three, right? And it's some guy who's got glasses this thick and some other kid who's got a piece of straw out of his mouth and some kid who can barely run. And you're standing there and you're like, man, I don't, can we just, I don't know, can we just flip a coin? Draw straws. I don't care who they are on. You can have all three of them. We don't want them. That's not how we pick in the world. If you want to win the game, you don't pick the weak things. You pick the strong things. And yet what God has done is he's, into, he's, he's come into this setting and he says, okay, I'm going to pick a team. And you and I pick, hey, I'm going to take Joe. And he's like, I'm going to pick the Coke bottle guy, Coke bottle glasses guy. Come on over here. <laughs> he comes over. Uh, I'm going to take Ryan. Oh, okay, God's like, mm, I'll take the guy with a straw in his mouth. He starts collecting like the nobodies. And at the end, the, the, the other team's looking at him going, man, this is going to be such a whitewash. We're going to destroy them. They get out there and we win. God's team wins 190 to nothing. Because every time God touches the ball, he scores. It's like Aaron Rodgers out there. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Justin Fields out there. Every time he touches the ball, he goes and he scores. And at the end of the game, the end of the game, does, does this little kid with a straw in his mouth walk over to the other team and go, in your face, I was amazing. No, he doesn't. When they put the microphones in the face of, of Ryan, sorry, if they put the uh, microphone in the face of the kid with the Coke bottle glasses, what does he say? Does he go, that's right, I'm the best there is. Does he say this? No, he says, he's the best there is. And he points to Jesus. We win. This is what God said. We win because our captain wins, the, wins, wins it for us. But there is no boasting in the winning because we didn't do it. We didn't do it. In fact, all the other guys in their team are better than we are. There's no boasting in any of it. And this is essentially Paul's argument. There should be no boasting in the sight of God because God has all done this to shame the other team, to show them that he's more powerful and capable than anything they could be. And so this has huge implications. We're, we're not Christians because we're, we're strong and capable. We're Christians because we're weak and needy. And that should... In, influence the way we think and act in huge ways. I'll give you one way. Um, we don't look down our noses at anyone, folks. At anyone. We show grace because we know grace. We show grace because we know grace. This is Paul's basic point with all the divisions in Corinth. He's basically saying, why are you guys boasting about how much better you are than someone else? We are Christians. Boasting is gone. The only reason you got in is because you stink. That's how. You have thick glasses. You can't run. That's how you got in. Why are you acting now like you're just like the kings of the earth? I'm better than you. There's no place in the church, Paul is essentially saying here. This movie I watched when I was a kid. It was called Regarding Henry. It's an old film. Uh, 
It has Harrison Ford in it. And he plays this character who's this really mean, wealthy man who's got a family, never spends any time with him. And his kids will like spill milk or, or things like that at the table and he'll just lose his mind. Everything has to be perfect. Everything's just gotta be just so. His wife has to look right. Everything's gotta be right. And if it's not right, he'll just let you have it. Well, what happens is he goes into a, he goes into a drugstore and he gets shot. And he's, he's barely alive. They take him to the hospital and he has massive brain damage so that he actually has to relearn everything. So there's this scene where he's sitting at the table with his daughter. And his daughter reaches for something. She spills the milk, a thing that he used to lose his mind about and, and, and send her to her room because how could she be so negligent? And she spills this milk and she freezes and she looks over at her dad who's just recovering from brain surgery and he looks at her and he knocks over his and he goes, it's okay, I do it all the time. <laughs> what changed? Well, he's been brought so low. That's what changed. The proud have been brought down to humility. He understands what it's like now to make errors and not get it right. And he's completely changed a changed man. Have you ever sat with people who are like in, in groups like Celebrate Recovery or, or uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and you, you worship with them or you spend time with them? You, you only need to stand in front and start like playing a basic. So you can do this with three chords and you just start playing and they're in it. And they're singing like crazy and tears and snot is going everywhere. Why? Why? Because they know they need him. They know it. Deep in their spirit, they know that they're nothing. And they know that the only way that they got there is because God, in his kindness, reached down out of heaven, grabbed them and pulled them to the shore, breathed in them a new life. Now they stand before him. Trophies of grace. People like that, people like that standing at the foot of the cross, they don't look at other people and go, hey, you don't have it together. Never. They never do that. Secondly, um, in terms of how this should influence the way we think and act, if you don't have it together, you're qualified for inclusion into this family. Do you know how uh, when they stand, people stand sometimes at the door of like a nightclub? I go to a lot of nightclubs, so this happens a lot to me. So door to the nightclub, and they have the roped off section and stuff. And if you're beautiful wealthy, important, you can bypass the whole thing, go to the front, and the guy's like, yeah, come on in. If you're Justin Bieber, you come on in. That shouldn't happen, by the way. They should get out of Bieber. But come on in. Doesn't matter. If you're really important, that's, that's what gets you in, invited to the good things, to the great parties, to the, the high-stakes clubs, that's what gets you in. And yet what God has essentially done is said, that's all ridiculous. That's the way the world thinks. That's the wisdom of the world. Here's the wisdom of God. If you can admit that you have not got it together, that you have been brought low to a point where you recognize that without God's involvement in your life, you are done for. If you can acknowledge that, God says, ooh, come on. Come on, I, I like you. I'm gonna throw the ball to you. So we get, we get invited in because of our failures. And then when we get in, listen, when we get in, we're like, 
I got it all together. Show up at Sunday mornings. See how I'm dressed? Perfect. I just yelled at my wife for a while, but you don't know that. Why are we, why, why? Why do we somehow think that we gotta put on a, a really happy, important, excited face? People sometimes ask me, Jeff, why is it that you share your mental health problems in front of big crowds of people? Because first, that's who I am, and ultimately, it brings me low. I don't have it together. Sometimes I sit on the edge of my bed and cry for no reason at all. Well, it's embarrassing for you to share that with people. Is it? Is it? As a Christian? No, it's not embarrassing at all. I'm a sinner. I fail. You fail. And that's the qualification for entrance. So treat it like it's a qualification for entrance. If you don't have it all together, you're welcome here. So listen, parent, if you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids. I'm ruining them. Welcome. You say, man, if you knew my past, <laughs> I bet. Welcome. What about my emotional health? And I, I don't always feel right. And sometimes I'm sad for no reason. Welcome. What about my future? I don't, I don't know where I'm headed or what I'm doing. I've got no indication and I just want to make a difference in the world and there's no open doors and stuff like that and I'm just, I'm just so sad. Welcome. Welcome to, to the community of the weak. That's what defines us. All right, last one. Um, we have a foolish ministry. This is an amazing section. He says, okay, and, and I, when I came to you, so there, there's, here's an example of the weakness. You guys, don't boast about anything because you guys shouldn't be boasting. Your divisions are ridiculous because you guys shouldn't be boasting because you're weak. And God chooses the weak things to shame the wise. And also, I'll give you another example. The way I preached to you, Paul says. The way I preached to you was in weakness, not in strength. Uh, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom. Last week I tried to tell you that there were these groups of guys who were called the sophists, who were itinerant teachers, who were kind of rock stars among the people of those days. You would, you would find out about the, the coming sophists coming into your town and you would rejoice at their presence and you would go and attend their meetings and you would pay your good money for them to make you laugh or cry or whatever. It didn't matter what the message was. It was all about the delivery. And they got these huge huge followings. And when they, when they had Paul show up and then they had Apollo show up and then they had Peter show up as itinerant teachers, the way the Corinthians understood them is these guys are sophists. They want, they want me to be on their team. And Paul's like, no, we're not. In fact, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with sophistry lofty speech or wisdom. For look, I decided, I purposely made it my aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you, not in bold, like the great speakers of the day with their flowing robes and majesty and an entourage. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but they were in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I came to you and I, I approached you in a particular way, a weak way. I could have come and been a sophist and won so many people. I can play the game. I can use the language. I can tell the jokes, but I could get so many people around me, but I chose not to do that among you because I knew you'd do that. So I instead chose to know only Christ and him crucified. Why? Because if, because what I win you with is what I win you to. What we are one with is what we are one to. Look, if you are one to Christ through some grand celebrity and you follow the grand celebrity, I was in California one time and this guy who was a well-known guy was doing an altar call. People were coming forward, you know? And he said, when you come up forward, I want to shake your hand. And as soon as he said this, like half the room stood up because I want to shake his hand. So they go forward to receive Christ so they can shake the hand. Some of them, hold on, I just love you. You're fantastic. And he's trying to pull away like he's Bono. If you, if you think that, oh, I love that celebrity. I love that Paul. I love that Apollos. When those people fail, as they will, your faith fails. Because what you were one with, you were one too. You were one with celebrity. You've been one to celebrity. And when celebrity stops, so do you. Um, I, I uh, have been around some Christians in the past that will do what they call chasing the anointings. So they'll go to one particular city where they believe that God's working in some magnificent way and then they'll go to the next city where there's another move of God and then they'll go to the next city where there's a move of God. They take these trips to the different moves of God around the United States. Oh, did you hear down in South America that God is moving in South America? They'll go down there for it. There's a church in my old town that used to have on their reader board every week, come to see the anointed and then the name of whoever it is. You got, the way they came to faith was in a massive experience with emotional power. And so now what have they been one to? A massive experience with emotional power. What if the experience isn't so massive and the emotions aren't so great? I'm going to find somewhere where that's the case. Well, what if it never, it never really comes to you? Well, I'm done with it then. Because what you were one with is what you were one to. That's what Paul's concerned about in the end. I worked at a church where they were, the, the community of faith was so strong. The community ties were so strong that we would get young adults who'd come into the church and they would get plugged in immediately. And we were like, this is amazing. They'd show up, get plugged in and tied and things. But then when they left the church and go somewhere else, they dropped their faith immediately. I didn't know what to do about it. After a while, having some conversations with them, it occurred to me, the reason they came to faith, to faith, the reason they came and got involved in the church is because of the welcoming people, because of the community they found there. And when the community stopped, when they couldn't find a church that was that communal, they stopped following Jesus because it was never about Jesus. It was about the people who welcomed them as they were. It was about the celebrity who thought that they, you, who they could meet. It was about the anointed and Paul's like, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. 
What does this mean in the end? I'll close with this. Look, um, I have a friend who's in a church and he told me that uh, whenever they get together and they plan their services, there's a guy in their, in their room who says this line. He says, okay, so how are we gonna wow them this week to bring them back next week? My friend told me, he said, that's not the question. The question is, it's not how are we gonna wow them, but how are we gonna show them Jesus? Like, what, what, how, how do we get out of the way so that they can see the magnificent wisdom of God, the power of God in the gospel? How do we lead them into that so that like John the Baptist, we become smaller and he becomes greater? Joseph Stoll, he was at a friend's church, really gifted communicator. His friend came to him afterwards and said, hey, how, how do you think the message went? And Joe Stoll smiled, put his hand on the shoulder of this friend named Bill. And he said, Bill, 10 minutes into this sermon, you disappeared. And I heard from God. May it be. One of our prayers as a church, and one of our great prayers as a church, is that this is a place where your attention is repeatedly drawn to Jesus the Lord. That those of us who proclaim it and those of us who play songs about it and those of us who lead and those of us even who serve in the hallways, that we're not, we're not the ones. He's the one. Love him, see him, know him. And he will be all the treasure you will ever need. Let me pray for us, Lord. I'm thankful for your word and I'm thankful for hard words, in fact, Father, to Americans like us. We see so much of Corinth in the way we think about this stuff. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, Father, to see that. And ultimately, that our, our affection would be for, for Jesus. And that you would reveal him to us more and more. Thank you for those who facilitate that. Thank you for musicians and speakers. And thank you, Father, for all of those who do your work but we pray ultimately, Father, that they would decrease and that you would increase, that people's treasure would be you alone who can fulfill them alone. And we pray it for our good and the glory of our God. In Jesus' name.